So uh, welcome. Uh, if you brought your Bible, go ahead and pull that out. We teach from the Bible most weeks here at Sedaris uh, and open it up to the book of Malachi. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we have some place down at the ends of your rows, and I'll let you know that because we're going to be going through a book of the Bible, it'll be helpful to have a physical copy of the scriptures in front of you because we're going to be flipping from chapter to chapter, and you will fall behind if you are on an iPhone or an Android. Actually, both of them equally <laughs> will make you fall behind. Um, so yeah, uh, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. It's right before the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if you hit the Jesus stuff, you've gone too far, reverse a little bit. Because um, those, those four gospels cover the, the life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus, okay? We're in the last book of the Old Testament. Testament, okay? And here at Sedaris, we're wrapping up our sermon series. This is our last sermon in a 12-part sermon series that, we, that we're doing that we started at the beginning of the year that we're, we've called Minor Prophets, Major Gospel. Minor Prophets, Major Gospel. Uh, because the prophets are of Israel were people who spoke for God, and the minor ones are a collection of short books. So these are the prophets that wrote short works um, that God was telling the people of Israel and, and the surrounding nations as well. And so those are the minor prophets. It's a group of uh, somewhat small and obscure books in the Old Testament. And uh, they're just minor because they're shorter, not because they're less significant. And uh, we, we've called it Minor Prophets, Major Gospel, because at the end of last year, Dave and I, uh, we were thinking about all the sermon series we're going to do for this year. And we said, what if we teach a series about the gospel based on the same source material that Jesus had. On the same source material that Jesus had. Because Jesus, throughout his life, he went from synagogue to synagogue, and, and he would pull out this scroll that would have these minor prophets on him. The Jews referred to him as the Twelve. And he would teach from them often. Okay, and, and, and then uh, after he died and rose again, he actually uh, hung out with his disciples for about 40 days. Um, and during that time, he kind of gave them a crash course, or you could even say a master's class for how to understand the Old Testament scriptures. And he told them that, hey, these minor prophets are written about me, and he kind of explained how exactly that was to be. That, that master's class is in Luke chapter 24, if you want to go look at it yourself. So, so Jesus taught from these, and, and he tied them to the major parts of his story and the, the major parts of his gospel message. So that's why we've called it Minor Prophets, Major Gospel. And it's been really fun going from each minor prophet, uh, a different one every week, because what we've found is that these uh, books that we think are small, obscure, and all say the same thing are small, really exciting, right guys? Maybe that's just me, but they're exciting and they all have very different emphases towards the gospel message of Jesus. Um, and so we, that's what we've been doing these last three months, okay? And it's been really fun. If you're just joining us or if you're new, I'd encourage you to just, um, we, we have them all posted online on our app or on the, uh, on the website and you can go, go and listen to them there as well, okay? Well, um, like I said, today we've come to Malachi. It's the last one. It's the end of the book of the 12, as the Jews call these minor prophets. And we know less about Malachi than any other prophet, than any other prophet. In fact, Malachi is just a Hebrew word for my messenger, my messenger. So we don't know if this is the actual name of the prophet who wrote it or if he's using a pseudonym, which I think he, I th I think he is. Um, the the and he's using it to communicate something else. We're going to see that later. But there's, there's never a Malachi talked about in the Bible. Um, Malachi, uh, this author, doesn't share any details about his life in the prophetic book. And, and so all we can really gather from uh, him is the situation that he was writing to. And um, it's of utmost importance for every age is the, this book of Malachi. So Jesus quoted it in his ministry, so it was important for his age. His disciples uh, quoted it in their ministries. Uh, Peter, Mark, Luke, the Apostle Paul, they all quote this book for, for, for the early church. It was important for them. And as I've read it, and I've reread it, and I've reread it this week, I'm convinced that it's really, really important for us as well, too. And if we let it, it has something pivotal to say to us and how we relate to God. And that's because Malachi's message is a timeless message. 
And it deals with topics that every follower of God at every time has dealt with and is going to deal with, both personally, intimately, throughout their entire lives. It's all about God's love and our response to that love. Malachi is all about God's love and our response. Our actions in response to God's love are just another way of saying worship, actually. If that term worship has been ambiguous to you in the past, that's all it means. Worship refers to the actions that we do in response to God's love. So, for example, we call this a worship service today. Okay, churches everywhere call their churches worship services. That's because they're viewing them through the lens of actions that we do in response to God's love. So we're singing songs, we're we're listening to the preached word, we're communing with one another. Those are our actions that we are hopefully doing in response to God's love. And we'll get into that a little bit later. This is a worship service. Okay, so that's how we conceive of the whole service. And and even here at Sedaris, we even say that considering God at all is an act of worship because we believe that it's a human response to God's love and beginning to reveal himself to somebody else. So the the question of, is God real, if it's asked honestly and in curiosity, we think that that is made possible by God's love to that person. And so we call it worship and we even celebrate that. And so if that's you, if you're starting to begin to ask those questions, that's how we have Alpha. Uh, Alpha isn't a church worship service, but there's worship happening there, both by the table leads like Lena and Josh and and others who came up here who are going to be leading it. Um, That's their service to the Lord, but also by people who are attending and just considering God, okay? So so Malachi handles these topics of love and these topics of worship, and and what we're going to see is that the the book of Malachi is really concerned with how the people of God worship, with how they worship. We find in Malachi that it's very important to God how the people of God worship because it reveals their hearts. It reveals their hearts. And, And so in Malachi, we see that God doesn't only hope that people worship him, He doesn't only hope that people respond to him with actions, but he's also very concerned with what those actions look like. They're of utmost importance to him, okay? Um, My wife Christy and I, we love to meet new people here in the city. And so we're often uh, creating key connections that open us up to a host of relationships, okay? Uh, So for example, the daycare that our three and a half year old Penny is at had a board position open up. And and Christy applied to be on the board and is on the board of this daycare. She didn't do it because she's power hungry. She did it because she loves to get access to people. And and now we have a bunch of relationships with the staff and the families at, at, at Penny's daycare. Um, There's a neighbor on our street, actually a couple, John and Jess. John and Jess, and we realized after we moved in last summer that John and Jess knew everybody. And so what do we do? I parked my car in front of their apartment complex every day for weeks until I could arrange a a meeting with them. You know, it was great, you know? And now John and Jess, I mean, those guys are great. He's got me thinking about maybe I need to go to Linwood to get collected water right now instead of the city water, you know? So be careful of those relationships. They'll make you do weird things. Um, <laughs> um, I've begun working at a co-working space for about 40 hours a month. Uh, it's called the Riveter. It's here in Fremont. So for 40 hours a month, I'm, I'm working among uh, about 100 other people. And so um, it's really cool, mostly kind of like in, with an entrepreneurial outset. Uh, that's what you find at the co-working spaces. And so just like you guys, I'm, I'm working with just everyday Seattle people for about 40 hours a month. Um, and then uh, also we go to every PTA event that our school can put on for Lucy's kindergarten uh, because it might just be a little bit selfish, but as a pastor, to go to an event that I didn't have to plan, <laughs> I didn't have to recruit volunteers for, I uh, didn't have to invite opportunities, uh, I forget how you're supposed to phrase it nowadays, but anyways, didn't, didn't have to set up for, have no responsibilities in, it's just amazing, just walk in and just hang out with people, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Um, so much so, we, we like leave thanking them profusely, probably weirdly. <laughs> you know, it's just like, we're just like, thank you, thank you. This is amazing, you know? Um, but we, we have a set of a, a couple strategic avenues that we engage in that open us up to a host of relationships. And um, kind of as a side note, before I get further, I, I want to say this is actually how you counter the Seattle freeze, okay? The, the, the Seattle freeze is not something that happens to you, okay? 
That, that's something very, that you should really accept. The Seattle freeze doesn't happen to you. If you feel like you're experiencing the Seattle freeze, um, it's actually something you're probably passively partnering with. Okay, so what you have to do is you have to get off Facebook, you have to get off Instagram, you have to get off the next community building app or microchip that they'll plant in our brains that's going to promise you community but it's just a counterfeit. You need to, and you need to get strategic about engaging the city, finding out where the, the, the key people that hold all the relationships are, tap into those people, and you get opened up to all sorts of communities. Okay. Uh, so that's just a side note, because we just have to be thoughtful as Christians about how to engage people in this city. And if, if you don't strategically take steps like that, uh, you might just bounce around in a city for a couple of years, not knowing anybody, and then you'll feel like moving around, moving away. And, and so, um, yeah, that's like a side note that's different. But in all these relationships, this is the point of all this story, in all, this, in all these relationships, it eventually comes out, and usually pretty quickly, that I'm a pastor. And, and, and many of the people um, respond like this. Oh, that's great. I'm a Christian, too. And I say, oh, that's awesome. What church do you go to? And they'll usually say one of the, one of the big ones in the city. And I'm like, oh, that's great. But then over the course of the conversation, it becomes clear that they really only go to, uh, there on uh, Christmas and Easter and, and not much else, you know? And um, so I have a couple options at this point as kind of a pastor that are, I'm kind of in a weird bind as a pastor, you know. Um, I can try to give them um, Jesus's vision for what church is to inspire them to go. Okay, that, that's one of the options that I have, and that I found it largely completely ineffective. Okay. <laughs> What happens next in that conversation is that they share with me that they practice their religion privately, that it's centered on them, and they're very content to conceive of God very, very ambiguously, okay? Um, so this really views religion as just another element of self-expression, okay? And, and then if I challenge the notion of a, a private faith that's centered on the self, that likes to stay ambiguous on, on who God is, um, I come across as attacking them out of self-interest. You see, like... Never trust someone whose paycheck depends on the product you're trying to sell them or something like that, you know? Uh, never trust them, you know? In fact, you guys can probably have that conversation a lot better than, than I can. But the other option that I have um, is I, I can realize that their lack of being united to a church in the way that Jesus talked about is a worship malfunction. It's a worship malfunction, and it's a worship malfunction in that it springs from the breakdown of being unaware of God's love for them. Somehow they've, they've forgotten or they've doubted God's love for them and how much God loved them. God loves them, okay? And, and through a conversation, they need to come into um, a, a realization of how much God loves them. Maybe they can do that at Alpha. Maybe I can have that with them. And I pray that other people have that with them. Because the only way that we can get past a, and help people think through and grasp through something more than a private faith that loves to stay ambiguous about who God is is to give them a, a much a less of an ambiguous uh, vision of God's love for them, okay? And, and so if you've caught a glimpse of how much God loves you, if you haven't done that, sorry, if you haven't caught a glimpse of how much God loves you, you won't worship him. So, so if you've never really worshiped God or you haven't done so in a long time, uh, that alpha step is a great next step for you because in that alpha class, there's a British guy named Nikki who's gonna tell you that God loves you in, in 10 different ways. We're very clear about exactly what's going to take place in that course. It's, it's understanding life's biggest questions through the lens of God's love for you, okay? But, but here's the deal. Malachi, he's addressing religious people. He, he, his letter is written to people, the, the people of God. And Malachi tells us that even people who go to church can become fuzzy on God's love for them. And then their worship begins to malfunction. Because in Malachi's day, for some it seemed like God just didn't care anymore. And it drastically colored their worship of him. If, if you remember where we were at in Israel's history, what's happening to, is, to the nation of Israel is they had gone into the promised land and they had been exiled from the promised land and then God had brought them back into the land. They had rebuilt the city walls. They had rebuilt the temple. They had rebuilt their community and their leadership structure through Ezra, Nehemiah, and, and Haggai. Those are three guys who led this up. There's three books named after them in the Bible. And after all of this, with all of the external circumstances that were going right for the people of God again, after everything had been restored, their true internal worship 
we find in Malachi, had not been restored. And so this is how we come to our study of the book of Malachi. And so the question is, so what happened? What was misfiring here, okay? Well, the people had forgotten God's love. And so this is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to unpack how they forgot God's love together, okay? And, and then we're going to look at the worship malfunctions that it led to. And then we're going to answer the question of, well, if this is us, and it, it might be if you see some of those worship malfunctions beginning to, to creep up in your life, if this is us, what can we do? What's next, okay? And, and, and then that's when we get to talk about Jesus in the major gospel part of Malachi, okay? All right, so first, we're going to talk about uh, God's love and how the people had forgotten it, okay? So right at the beginning of the book of Malachi, Malachi deals with this notion of love. He gets into it right away, which is really great. Um, he is better at getting to the point than I am. I've been talking for like 10 minutes, right? So, but Malachi just dives right into it. So chapter 1, verse 1, the chapters are the big numbers, the verses are the little numbers. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, I have loved you says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? What a very interesting start to the book. Very interesting start to the book. God shares his love for the people and the people doubt it. And how do we know that they, that they doubt it? Well, actually, when we look at the Hebrew, there's an interrogative, interrogative participle that's attached to it that you can clearly see that is attached to questions that assume there's no response. You, you could even, um, we, we do this all the time in our language, we just don't have markers for it. You could even imagine someone looking at their boo and saying, I love you, and boo looking back and saying, you love me? How have you loved me? Or by what means have you loved me? Okay? So we do this all the time, and this is what's happening in, these, in this first couple of verses. Israel is doubting God's love. Now, that's not to say that questions of God aren't bad. Uh, four weeks ago, we were in the book, the, the prophet of Habakkuk. We saw Habakkuk ask a lot of hard questions of God. But Habakkuk's questions were asked in curiosity. They were asked in patience. This question is being asked in doubt and dismissal, Okay? Israel at this point is questioning whether God loves them at all, and they're almost certain that God doesn't love them. They're doubting his love mainly because, and probably because their experiences were incongruous with what they envisioned being loved by a God would actually look like in their lives. Doesn't that sound familiar? Does God really love me? This is, this is something all humans can slip into. If God really loved me, then he would be doing this for me. If God really loved me, my life might look like this. The people of God can slip into these questions all the time. And God answers this question by saying, of course I love you. Of course I love you. And, and the evidence that he's going to point to is he's going to say, I treat you vastly differently than all the other nations on the face of the earth. And he's going to reference the nation of Edom. Edom came from a guy named Esau. He started, he's kind of at the top of the, the, the um, family tree of the, that bred the, the nation of Edom. And he was Israel, that's Jacob's brother. So this is a pair of brothers. And at one point in history, we, we talked about this in the prophet of Obadiah, um, Edom had started to fight against Israel and started to take their people as slaves and take all their goods as plunder. And so God judged them and uh, poured out his wrath on them, actually. It was kind of an intense book that we read there together. Okay, and so that's what's happening here. God is saying, hey, I make a differentiation. If you just look at history, anybody who's against you, Israel, I go against them, okay? So I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet yeah, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the earth. Okay? So, so God says, of course I love you. And so we're, we're tempted to roll our eyes and say, oh, Israelites, you guys are so, you have such weak faith. How, when will you ever get it? But in reality, this is the dynamic that has colored all of humanity ever since the fall. And, and we actually see this in Genesis chapter 3, the same dynamic of doubting God's love for us. So uh, Genesis chapter 3. All right. 
This is the, the text that's referred to as the fall. This is when the serpent tempts Eve. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord has, had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And here's the lie. But the serpent, the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit of it and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the uh, the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig trees together and made themselves loincloths. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You see that? In Satan's attempt to turn humans against God, he still uses it to the, today. He appeals to the fact that God doesn't want what's best for us. That God doesn't love us. That God really just loves himself, that his requests of worship actually limit us from achieving our full potential. This is something that is as old as Genesis, all the way back to the beginning. He planted it in Eve, and then he planted it in Israel here, and he plants this accusation of God in us today to convince us to feed our own selfishness and our own independence, whatever that may look like. And this is why it's so appropriate that Malachi ends the Old Testament because we just saw at the very beginning of the Old Testament we see humanity tempted to feed their own selfishness instead of worshiping God, instead of of obeying God. And so from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the Old Testament, we see that the people of God have struggled with this same thing, to feed themselves and not worship God. From the beginning to the end, no matter how much God has worked with them, here we see God has worked from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, worked wonderful miracles for his people of Israel. A thousand years before Malachi was written, uh, he, he brought them out of slavery in Egypt, led them through the desert, literally had food fall out of the sky for them to eat brought them into the promised land, reestablished them in the promised land, built the walls, rebuilt the temple for them, and still selfishness reigned. Still selfishness reigned. See, all of the external circumstances that God had done for thousands of years would not change the hearts of the people. And Satan plants this doubt of God's love in every generation because when we don't grasp the love of God, We act selfishly, and we can't respond in worship, okay? And and so the question we we must ask then is, well, how how can we know? How how can we know? How can we know that that we are, that that our worship is is good or not? How can we know that? And, And so Malachi is actually structured around six disputes. This is actually the first one. And the next five actually fall underneath this first one. The first one's about God's love, and the next five are all the malfunctions of our worship. That, that the people of God's worship was, was looking like in the, the, the time of Malachi. Okay, so we're just going to go over these in 30,000-foot view to just help you understand uh, what these malfunctions can look like, help us understand what these malfunctions can look like. Um, yeah, because it's just really helpful to actually understand what, what are we talking about here. Okay, all right, so the first one is actually starts in verse 6. Um, right away, we get into the second dispute. And uh, it's about giving God leftovers. Giving God leftovers. It starts like this. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, God says, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. So so, so what's happening here? Well, what Israel had been doing is they had been offering uh, these animals, these sacrifices to God from the, the parts of their flock that were sickly, that were lame, 
And, and, and God, that, that closing question is very stark. He's like, if you were to give this even to just a human governor who you were trying to honor, what would that person's response to be? response be to that? And surely I'm God. I'm much greater than this human. And so he, he's, you, can, you can sense the anger there. You can sense how upset God is with that. And so really what we have to do is we have to, we have to discover, well, what does it mean to present these, uh, these sacrifices that are, are lame and, and weak and, and blemished to God? After all, uh, who, who's the last person here that, that sacrificed an animal to God, right? I hope nobody, okay, I hope nobody's done that. Um, <laughs> but here's some questions to consider um, as, uh, to kind of help you think whether maybe you're bringing God your best or not, okay? The, for, and you can probably think of more questions than these. The first one goes like this. Um, do I come to the weekly worship service well-rested? That's just an, an easy one. Am I prioritized coming well-rested to the worship service. Worship, this is the place where we respond to God's love. This is an act of worship, uh, that we're, we're responding to God's love and coming to church. Or am I giving God my leftover energies of the week? Am I more well-rested for my boss on Monday morning than my Heavenly Father on Sunday morning? Heavenly Father lets you come in at 10 a.m. too. That's pretty nice. Yeah, that's one thing. Um, when your energy dips and gets low, what are the things on your calendar that get kicked off of it? Versus what are the things that you make sure to get to no matter what? Um, if if um, things uh, go sideways with your finances or you get some unexpected expenses uh, that month, what are things on your budget? What's at the top line of your budget that you'll fund no matter what? And what's at the bottom line that you'll kick off if things get tight? That one's such a big one that Malachi gives it its own oracle to live in and breathe in a little bit later. But these are some of the questions we can ask. Are we giving God our best or are we giving him our leftovers? Are we giving him our leftovers? Because when we understand God's love for us, we're inclined to give him our best. When we see God give us his best, then it's really easy to give him our best. Okay, and, and God is, he's, he, it's not just like he doesn't like these offerings. He actually wishes he didn't have them all together. Look at verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that's to the temple, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. What God is saying is, I'd rather you not do it at all because it's adding insult to injury. When you bring leftovers to me, it actually says that I'm not worth that much to the rest of the world. And so th this, uh, th this one really asks, forces us to ask the question, are we bringing our leftovers to God or are we bringing him our best? Now, you might say, like, man, Ryan, like, that's kind of intense. Who, who are you to kind of look at me and, and challenge whether my worship is acceptable before God or not? Well, we have to look at the second dispute for that, okay? That actually starts in chapter 2, verse 1. This dispute is one that God has with the priests. And now, O priests, God says, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread, this part's crazy, dung on your faces. The dung of your offerings and you shall be taken away with it. So what God is saying is <laughs> the priests are the ones allowing this worship. The priests are the ones who are mediating this leftover worship to God. And so, so while God just looks at the people and says, I have no pleasure in you, he looks at the priest and he says, you know the stuff that comes out of the animal when you kill it because animals lose control of their bowels. You're going to give me those leftover sacrifices. I'm going to take that leftover poop and wipe it on your face, priests. It's a really intense picture. It's a really intense picture. And this is why Dave and I are willing to have conversations like this. I don't want a poop face. 
I don't want that. I don't want that at all. And so this, this is why priests are held to a higher standard. And in a certain way, your pastors are the ones who are supposed to come alongside you and challenge your acts of worship to help you see if they're your best or if they're your leftovers. Beware of pastors that can't do this for you or don't do this for you. Because what God says here is you may experience their kind words as as blessing. You may hear the ways that they tickle your ears as encouragement. But in reality, God says, it's right there in verse 2, I will turn their blessing into cursing. They're actually cursing you, and you may not even know it. That's why we take it seriously, and that's why we do issue challenges here. Now we, of course, do it in grace and love, and there's a ton of room to process through these things and evaluate leftover worship, but it comes from just a position of honesty and and working through it together, okay? There's just too much at stake for Dave and I before the Lord not to do that for you guys. All right. Number three, this one is, uh, 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 there came a high divorce rate in Israel. This is um, the third uh, dispute here. There's a high divorce rate in Israel. And this is actually in the back half of Malachi chapter two. I'm not going to read from it, but uh, it was actually, when, when you read through it, you find out that it's the men's fault. The men of Israel were chasing after foreign women. So they're divorcing their wives to get married with uh, women from surrounding nations. And this is really interesting that, that Malachi uh, references this as a worship malfunction because it tells us something very interesting, that the way that, that husbands are to conceive of loving their wives are as acts of worship to the Lord. And the men had forgotten to do this. They had lost a, a good vision of God's love for them, and so they could no longer love their wives or be faithful to their wives, and it was malfunctioning. Um, now, I, I think that uh, not all of us are married here, and, and a lot of people are actually kind of scared to get married here in, in Seattle, not because of what was happening in, in Israel 2,500 years ago, uh, but, the, but because there's a high divorce rate in our culture now, right? You've, I think everybody's heard the phrase, raise your hand if you've heard this phrase, uh, half of marriages end in divorce, and it's the same inside the church as outside the church. Everybody's heard this phrase that's been put out there. Um, no one actually knows where that came from, which is really interesting. And there's this Harvard researcher named uh, Shanti Feldman. I'm pronouncing her last name wrong. But she actually took it to task to figure out where did this stat come from? Where did it come from? And what she found was fascinating. And she, she recorded it in her book called The Good News About Marriage, if you want to look it up on your own. What she found was that the divorce rate never hit 50% that that stat actually came from a projection of where uh, a study that thought where divorce might go that was done in the early 80s, about 10 years after divorce was first legalized, okay? And so uh, she she found that the the divorce rate crept up to about 30%, not a great number. It crept up to about 30%, and then it stayed there. And as of about 2014, that's when she wrote, she said that the, the divorce rate actually sat at about 31%. But here's what's more fascinating about her findings, because what's the difference between 50 and 31 percent? It's still a lot, right? What's the difference between one and two and one and three? Um, well, it's about eight percent, I guess. Sorry. <laughs> kind of shot myself in the foot there. Okay. Um, no, but uh, what she uh, was, uh, the, the more important thing that she found was that she found that among the population of people who attended church services twice a month together, of couples who attended church services twice a month together, their divorce rate was between 5 and 10%. Okay, what a huge vindication of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Understanding the love of the Father towards his people empowers us to love one another. It's a huge vindication of that stat. And so that, that, that original stat is it's just a bad stat that's poorly, mis- poorly applied. And so you can toss it out and tell your friends about it too, okay? Um, one application here that, that, we, that I'd love to point to is um, women, you, you need to be really careful because you have to remember that this is men of Israel's fault. You need to be really careful about the men who you date. Do they love the Lord? Do they love God? Are they, or you can even word it like this. Have they experienced and are they experiencing God's love? Because if not, you're taking a huge risk. 
it's a big risk. Now, I'm not saying that can't come out good. Uh, last week, we had an example of how that actually ended up really great because Andrea dated Urson, and then Urson came to know the love of God. Praise the Lord, you know? But it's a huge risk. And um, just as your pastors, we, we just need to share that with you. It is a huge risk, okay? All right. Um, the next dispute is in uh, chapter 3, verse 6. The, the title there is Robbing God. Let's actually start in verse 7 here. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, God says, and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If, you, if I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed and you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So the, the tithe in ancient Israel was just how, um, is just how one of the tribes actually lived. Okay, so the tribe of Levi lived off of the 10% of everybody else's um, income uh, in the land. So for example, that's all the uh, tithe means. It just means a tenth. And so for example, if, if your field produced 100 bales of hay that year, you would take 10 of them and you would give them to the priests. And the priests would take those and they wouldn't light them on fire to, the God, to God as like a sacrifice. They would live off them. Okay, so, so a tenth of all of Israel's um, income and increase was to, to support one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's because the, the Levites were primarily the people who were the priests in the land. They, were, uh, they would also be kind of judges in the land. They would kind of preside over disputes between the people. They're also, uh, if you read the, the Torah, they also had a lot of like doctor duties, like identifying rashes and not stuff you want to do, really. If you do that, praise you. I, I couldn't do it. I really couldn't do it. But so these, these Levites, are, are li they had all these jobs that they didn't get any pay for. And so they're living off of the tithe. And I think today we can ask a lot of questions about this tithe, um, primarily uh, sometimes even to create a state of confusion about it so we don't necessarily have to um, engage it. Uh, no one comes to me and says, you know, it says in this Old Testament not to murder, but I don't know, that's for the Old Testament people of God. This is the New Testament people of God. I, I don't know. I, may, I don't know if I, I can really understand that command very well. No, we, we just don't murder each other, right? We, we're very good at obeying the commands in the Old Testament that are easy to do. Um, but here in uh, the Old Testament, we have a command that is reiterated at seven, several points in time for Israel. Give a tenth. And, but, and so we've actually created a lot of resources to help people engage these questions too. We actually preached a, a three-part sermon series two falls ago on the Gospel of Mark because Jesus talked about money all the time. And uh, so we took all of the sayings that Jesus had about money in Mark and we put them into a three-part sermon series. You can find that online. Um, we've also created like a, a, a giving handout to clarify questions about giving uh, that we uh, hand out at our, our family member class. Um, but it's, it's accessible to everybody as well. If you want one of those, just email Dave or myself. We'll get it to you. Um, but just as a spoiler alert, we, we uh, here at Sedaris, we do think that God is inviting all people of God throughout all time to test him in this way with 10% of their increase. We, we believe that, that it, so that means that we also believe that when people give in this way, that they will see God show up in their lives to support them, even when they feel like it might be too much. Oy. Now, now, that's not to say uh, if you're not there yet, you need to get there tomorrow, you know? So this actually takes good financial planning to get to a point where you can actually give away 10% of your income. But I will say this, that I haven't met anybody who's given a tenth um, that has engaged this practice faithfully that has gone without. And I haven't met anybody who has engaged this practice faithfully that has re even regretted it. And, and so... Um, 
this is just a challenge to begin thinking about this if you haven't done that before. And Dave and I, we have created the resources. We're also available just to talk about it a little bit more. We think that it's a, a command that God has for all of his people. It's kind of a goal to get to. And, and we even see people surpassing it in their lives too as they come closer and closer into contact with the generosity of the gospel. Okay, so that's all I'm going to say about tithing, okay? Um, and then the, the last one here just regards general acts of service. Israel had, uh, because they really lost track of God's love for them, they realized, or they thought that their acts of service, they're like, these aren't profiting us at all. Why will we continue to serve the Lord? Whenever our acts of service get divorced from actually the love of God, as a response to the love of God, all of a sudden we'll realize that, or we'll, we won't realize, we'll think that they're not serving us. But when we do them as a response to God's love, what happens is our individual lives and the acts of service that we're doing for the kingdom, they actually become much, much more intertwined than we think. And so when we see the kingdom profiting, we actually see ourselves profiting through it. It's a strange, beautiful thing that happens uh, through service. And so, for example, there's 15 people who set all this up today, you know? And they participated in the, the kingdom of God. And each and every week, there's 15 largely different people who do it. Many of you are the ones who do it. And so thank you for that. And I hope that you continue to see that as a response to God's love for you. Okay? All right. So now that we've seen all of them, what do we do? What do we do? What do we need in order to move forward? Okay? And as I read through these malfunctions, I did... I played a kind of a mean preacher trick on you. I skipped over their life-giving solutions. If you're sitting there and you're like, Phew, is this guy always just going to challenge, challenge, challenge? I'm like, well, I skipped over the life-giving solutions, okay? And now we're going to go back to those because interspersed throughout Malachi is Malachi. What does Malachi mean? My messenger. Interspersed throughout these, these malfunctions is the solution of a messenger that's going to come. What do we need if we've lost sight of God's love? We need a messenger to come and tell us about God's love. Okay? And we see that happening at a few points here in Malachi. Look at the one with me that begins in chapter 3, verse 1. Okay? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now, Jesus quoted this to refer to a guy named John the Baptist. Jesus said, this messenger is John the Baptist, okay? But as we continue to read verse 1 here, there's actually a second messenger that's present. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So we have another messenger that's there that actually owns the temple, can't be John the Baptist, and another messenger that owns the covenant of Israel, can't be John the Baptist. And the Jewish theologians agree that we have two different messengers that are present here in 3 verse 1. And that second messenger is the messenger that, that there are whispers about in the entire Old Testament, starting with Eve when, when God gave her a promise that said, one day one of your descendants will crush the head of Satan. It's whispered about the super prophet in Deuteronomy 18, we see him surfacing in the Psalms as this messianic kingly figure. We see him surfacing throughout these small prophetic Old Testament books, the second messenger that would come and deliver the people of God. And 400 years later, these two messengers were the, people that the, pe were the two people the people of God were waiting for when Jesus showed up on the scene. And Jesus put faces to him. So it's that first one, John the Bee. Second one, that's me. You like that? That's how you can remember it. Two messengers. Jesus united those to himself. Okay? Now, because Malachi talks about this second messenger, we can look at, at, in, in Malachi here to find out about what, how Jesus was supposed to function. Okay? So that's in the, the next two verses. Two through four. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he, that's the second messenger, Jesus, is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. A fuller was someone who dealt with the wool that they would cut off a sheep. After being on a sheep for about a year, it got really nasty. So they'd 
clean it. That's what fullers do. Um, but Malachi fleshes out the first one of those similes for us. He is like a refiner's fire. He will sit as a refiner, in verse 3, and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness. See that right worship language? To the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. This messenger is going to refine his people, and then they're going to be able to offer right worship before him. A refining fire. Here we see that this messenger is going to show up on the scene as a refiner's fire. Let me work the analogy out for you. And burn away the selfishness that is attached to the people of God. That, that selfishness that started all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. That he's going to burn it off, and it's going to be a little bit painful, right? This is a painful analogy. Ovens are hot. Refining fires are hot. The people of God go in it, and the, the, the selfishness is burned away. Why does it have to be painful, you might say? But you know what? It's not all-consuming. It's a very focused fire. It's not a completely consuming fire. And this, uh, this fire, this analogy of a fire is what carries the rest of the, the book, the imagery of the rest of the book. It's a refiner's fire, not a forest fire. So if you look at 3 verse 6, it says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. That's fire language. If you skip down to chapter 4, verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogance and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze. Fire language, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them, it will leave them neither root nor branch. Okay, so we have this, this fire language that's taken place, and this is why Jesus came, so that people who put their faith in him would only be subjected to the refiner's fire instead of the all-consuming fire. This is how we understand Jesus on the cross. Jesus on the cross takes the consuming fire for people who would put their faith in him so that when God shows up, him and his message, they can just be subjected to a refining fire that purifies them. And, and, and it's clear that many, many people are going to respond this way. Even in Malachi's day, they could respond in this way by faith and lean upon the mercy of God. Look at it here in, in verse 16. 316, those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. It's refining language. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. We have the same distinction that's made that God talks about at the first dispute of his love. How do you know if I love you? Because I make a distinction between you. To those who, who love him and serve him, he is a refining fire. Jesus is a refining fire. To those who don't, they will experience him as an all-consuming fire. This is why Jesus came. He came to share this message of love. And you only have to turn a couple pages, because we're in Malachi, to go to the Gospel of Matthew. And we start to see this message of love that Jesus has. He's caring from God to the people. It starts in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. It's a great sermon of love. It might surprise you what Jesus sounds like and what this message of love might sound like at points, but it's a message of love that's good for his people. But Jesus didn't just come to give a message of love. We've already kind of brushed up against it, but he came to embody that message of love. He came to say, you know, you've been on the wrong side. Your selfishness has put you on the wrong side of God's love, so I'll go there and I'll take that consuming fire. So you can just consider God as a refining fire in your life. Romans 5, Jesus, or Paul says, while we were still sinners, we know that God loved us because Christ died for us. Now, what happens when we embrace God's love this way? Well, 4 verse 2, but for you who fear my name, it says, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. I have a video of it, so we're going to throw it up there.
You see, when we understand the love of, the, of God, Malachi says we leap like calves out of the stall. And it might be a gimmick to show you a cute video of an animal at the end of a sermon, but Malachi does it too. This is how our obedience to God becomes when we understand the full love of the Lord. And, and so how about uh, just bow your heads and, and pray with me. This is really the joy that's at stake in our life if we decide to, to, to not press into this issue with, with Malachi. Um, but we really just want you to experience the joy that comes from o- obedience uh, to, to God. So, um, Father, we thank you so much for our time together today that we got to hear from your word um, 2,500 years old and and still alive and active and speaking to people today, God. And right now, I just ask that you would would lead us in in your grace and in your mercy. May the ways that we fall short in in worshiping you, just lead us to to throw ourselves on your mercy and, and not feel condemnation and ask you to help us with it. So, Um, I thank you for my friends, and I thank you for how they've given up a beautiful Sunday morning, and I just pray that you would empower them to have an even better Sunday Sunday afternoon now that they can be united uh, to you in a special way through worship. For all this in the name of Jesus, amen.